On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Brian Chapman from Chapman Cycles in Rhode Island. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I talk to someone in the bike frame building world. Uh, so we're talking about perspectives. We're talking about, you know, passion. Why do we care about the bike frame building world as frame builders or as painters or as, you know, material suppliers or uh, trade show creators? Um, what is it that, that makes us passionate about bikes? And um, so I try and draw out some of those sort of perspectives questions and uh, hopefully make it fun and entertaining to y'all along the way. This week, our guest is Brian Chapman from Chapman Cycles in Rhode Island. In this uh, interview, we get into, we're talking about his history, how he got into it, because I wasn't super clear on that, but I knew that in the past he had worked at um, Circle A Cycles in Providence, Rhode Island, with some other fine folks, and he tells us the history of that, the nearly 10 years that he spent working there before uh, sort of going solo, and now he makes bikes in his backyard the last five or 10 years under um, Chapman Cycles. And it's really beautiful stuff. It's pretty old school. He does the painting himself. It's all brazed together steel. Some of it's lugs. Some of it's fillet brazed and bilaminate construction. Uh, when he does lugs, he usually does, I think, at least a little bit of carving and uh, you know decorative work on the lugs. When he's doing um, you know bilaminate sleeves, of course, that's from scratch. Uh, he does a lot of really cool stuff, uh, really beautiful stuff that I used to really you know, aspire to make similar kinds of things. I moved in a different direction for what I was most interested in doing personally, but I really appreciate watching his work, and uh, I think he does it beautifully. And speaking of watching his work, if you follow him on Instagram, uh, you will see, you know, all these videos that he takes a fair amount of time to produce where uh, he uses a nice camera and he shoots process videos showing the grinding and the filing and the fit up and the torch work and the bending and all the stuff that goes into making his bikes. And it's, it's generally pretty low tech. You know, the way that Brian builds bikes is not a whole lot of complicated tools and machines, although a little bit, he has a bridge port and a lathe. Um, but a lot of it just comes from the years of experience. And, uh, you know, it's more of like, uh, it's more artistry than it is, um, you know, sort of like machining, uh, is sort of my take on it. I, I love watching him work, um, his, his, his hands and the, you know, he's just got a lot of familiarity. You can see when he's operating a pneumatic die grinder or a dynafile or whatever it is, uh, or the torch work, you know, he's just, he's got so much control and experience. It looks like he knows exactly what he's going for and he nails it. Uh, I, I've done some of that sort of work and, um, I never got that familiarity under my hands that I could just uh, tear into it with the power tools and, um, and make it happen in the same sort of way. So I love watching him work. Uh, and it's really cool that he's taking the time to produce those, those videos. I want to talk a little bit before the show starts about Cobra Frame Building, right? So if you follow me on Instagram or if you've been to my website, it has been Cobra Frames, right? CobraFrames.net or Cobra Frames on Instagram, and I'm doing a subtle rebrand to CobraFrameBuilding.com and Cobra Frame Building on Instagram. And, um, and so the idea there is just that my business model uh, in the last year has changed from you know where I used to be more of a hobby frame builder with uh, eventual aspirations to maybe make a living uh, as a frame builder. Never got there, but you know that used to be where I was kind of headed. 
And now I am squarely in the camp of making and selling frame building tools. But I don't just make the tools and sell the tools, end of story. I feel like my purpose is to serve the community. And that's why I make this podcast. And that's why I make the YouTube videos that I make. And, uh, you know, at some point, I'd like to have a better blog on my website. And if you want to reach out to me and send me an email or, uh, you know, whatever, ask me a question, I will do my best to shoot back a response that's helpful. And if I don't have the answer for you, I will try and point you in the right direction. I think I have a fair amount of resources at my fingertips. And, um, you know, I want to be of service to people. I mean, ideally, uh, people succeed in frame building and they buy my tools when it makes sense to. And, uh, you know, so I mean, I love frame building anyway. I've always wanted to make a podcast like this anyway. And now I have a good reason to do that because it serves the demographic of people who might buy my stuff, right? So anyway, just wanted to explain the rebrand that I'm doing as Cobra Frame Building because uh, that is the space that I occupy is trying to help frame builders succeed. And um, I wanted to make that really clear with the brand of what I do and not <laughs> continue to confuse people by suggesting that maybe I'm a frame builder myself. I would like to continue building bike frames in so much as I can make content about it for YouTube and so that I can continue to learn and uh, be a better tool designer and be more of a useful aid to other frame builders. But I'm not building bike frames for sale to the public. Uh, and so that is why I'm rebranding to Cobra Frame Building. I also uh, want to say that this week's sponsor, I haven't been doing that every week, but this week again I have a sponsor and it is, surprise, surprise, it is one of my tools. It is the uh, brazing clamp. This is one of the very first tools that I released uh, over a year ago when I started selling frame building tools. And uh, the way I usually sell my brazing clamp is in a three pack. And if you live in the United States, I'll ship it to you. Priority mail, the three pack and the price shipped is $110, which I think is a good value. You get three clamps, which you really want more than one. The idea is that, you know, when you have little cable guides or uh, you know, different things that you're trying to hold onto the frame and braze them on or weld them on. Uh, you need some sort of clamp to do that. And it's kind of weird how hard it is to just like go to Harbor Freight or something and find a clamp that does the job. You can always get it done with a little bit of screwing around and uh, some ingenuity. Certainly, uh, that's what I did for years. And then what happens half the time is that you're, you get things up to temperature and now you have a flux soaked uh, cable guide that has slipped and fallen onto the floor. It's 900 degrees. It's soaked in flux. The flux has now attracted the dirt that was on the floor and you need to let it cool and then clean it. And you've lost a ton of time, not to mention it's frustrating, right? Um, I, I should have bought braze clamps sooner. But anyway, what I offer is a three pack of braze clamps. Uh, and if you live outside of the United States, I also ship. It just costs a little bit more and takes a little bit longer to arrive. Um, I think they're a really good value. They provide really good torch access. They're easy to use. And I would say like 90% or more of the things that you want to, you know, braze or weld onto the frame, little cable guides and, and things, you can get held on with these little clamps. And it's, it's interesting if you go into my Instagram and you look at the pictures that I'm tagged in, a lot of those are of my braze clamps. People will tag how they use them. And it is surprising to me the creativity that my customers have for all the different ways that they've thought to use these that I never dreamed of in the beginning. Um, so clearly they're, they're even more useful than I originally imagined. Uh, I don't think anyone who would buy a set of these would later regret the purchase. They're super useful and they save you a lot of time. And if you're going to make some bikes, I think you should consider buying a pair, cobraframebuilding.com. And so now I want to get into the interview, right? That's what you're here for. 
Uh, it was a great interview with Brian, and um, where we're cutting in here, I asked him to sort of lay out the history uh, of Circle A Cycles and how he got into bicycle frame building. I visited you and Chris Bull at your shop in Providence, Rhode Island in 2010 in the summer before, it was like a month or so before I took my Doug Fadick frame building course. And it was really cool. Yeah. It was like the first real frame building shop I think I had ever seen in person. And that same weekend I saw the one that um, Brian Hollingsworth and Ian Sutton were sharing in um, Somerville, Massachusetts, right in Boston there. I saw them and their shop and that was cool. And uh, so it was like, that was a big deal to me. One of the first shops I ever saw and, and you were, <laughs> maybe Chris was busy that day, but you spent a while showing me around and I remember, you know, talking to you for like an hour or so. You were really, it was really nice to get that tour from you. Um, but I don't know if that was near the beginning of your frame building career or if you had been tinkering with bikes for a long time before that. And I would love to hear some of like the backstory of how did you get started and when did you get started and who did you learn from and what was your initial inspiration? Well, the first, um, I guess uh, I got into the bike industry through, um, oh, geez, every time I want to say something, it's like I, there is a little farther back, but whatever. I'm not going to tell you the long story. It's the bike building aspect that I think you'd be more interested in. The I, uh, I guess I, I worked at a bike shop from 87 to 97 in Attleboro, Massachusetts, um, called Union Cycle, and there I learned oh my God, everything about bikes. I mean, before that, I had I'd obviously ridden bikes. I've been riding BMX for a long time, Flatland BMX, um, mm -hmm. since like the early 80s. I used to race to, um, I should say, I, I mean, I'm 40, I'll be 46 this year. So Yeah, and you don't look safer. it. You, I think most people would assume oh, you were in your mid-30s. Oh, so you're looking good. You can the way you ride the BMX bike and the way that uh, the way that your face looks, people would I think across the board assume you're ten or fifteen years oh, younger. Oh, so. you say that to all the builders. No, you're doing it right, man. I, I, what are you? What kind of what kind of cleanse are you on? What? It, <laughs> it's the the healthy uh, vegetarian lifestyle um, and uh, two cups of coffee. I don't know. Um, I don't have any secrets. Um, yeah, I well, thank my parents. Yeah, you're doing great. So, um, anyway, anyway. So anyway, I ended up uh, from the shop. I learned about. I mean, we were a Bridgestone dealer. Uh, I don't want this interview to go really long. Um, no, anyway, so yeah, uh, I got super super into Bridgestone uh, bikes and and uh, the um, uh, I guess the uh, I almost called it Rivendell, the Bridgestone Bible that um, uh, uh, that, that we'd get every uh, year, which was the, the Bridgestone catalog. And it was just such an amazing uh, wealth of information. And that's where I really kind of learned about, like, I mean, I knew how bikes were made, like uh, welded or lugged or brazed, but I didn't really know any beyond that, just the surface. And mm -hmm. I was really into bikes. It's funny. It's like and so at someone that time, can be really into it. Through the, through the 90s there, Grant Peterson was the person who was doing yep. a lot of the main design work for Bridgestone, who then yeah, went yeah, on sorry. to yeah, start Grant. the company Rivendell, right? Yes, exactly. And okay. so um, it was all Bridgestone all the time, though, uh, for a grant in the 90s uh, and I guess part of the 80s. So it's um, uh, and in, the, that, in that time, I learned about I would go to races because I was racing road bikes, too. And I would see Richard Sachs at like the um, Cox Classic or the Capital City Criterium, um, uh, just like these races around here. And I'm not like I'm not a Richard Sachs racer. I'm not I'm just like a, a, a cat six <laughs> i was a citizen i was i got a, i was a cat three at one point but uh yeah for the most time i was like at that point i was racing like citizens or something but it was exciting 
to see someone like Richard Sachs riding on a bike that he built with his own bare hands, kind of. Yeah. Um, with uh, yeah, not kind of exactly, and uh, it was just really, uh, it was just something to see. I was like, wow, I didn't know that people did that. And then I learned about through Bicycling Magazine of all places about um, people who did more ornate uh, lug work, like uh, Ericsson or um, uh, even. And then going way, way back, learning about like uh, <laughs> my mind. I'm just so uh, psyched right now. I don't know why I'm just like blanking, but uh, about like Les Esgrave or um, like a lot of the uh, English builders who would do these crazy ornate lug sets. And uh, and I thought it was just so cool, uh, mm-hmm. but I didn't know anything about it. And um, but I wanted to build bikes. I really didn't. So I went to school for mechanical engineering and got a degree. And um, I I didn't end up building bikes because there was not, no one really does that around here. Uh, that kind of, I mean, I wanted to work at Cannondale, uh, which is like the farthest thing from a steel bike. Um, and I did, I didn't get a job there. So I ended up doing it work here in Providence and then met Chris bull. And Mm -hmm. that's, we're trying to fast forward to circle a time here. And so I bought a bike from him because I was working a, a real job at the university here doing computer stuff and then but still heavily into bikes i was uh, mostly riding bmx flatland at the time and then uh got a single speed from chris in 2002 because that's what you do in 2002 it was awesome <laughs> was um, he building and then I, under his name or was this like was this pre-circle a was circle a something you started with him no 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 this was he had started circling in 2001 in worcester up in um in massachusetts and then uh that same year moved down because he was working at hot tubes before that with toby stanton mm-hmm. and um now then he set up shop literally uh, maybe, I don't know, quarter mile at the most up the street from where I lived in Providence. And I was like, this is weird. This is meant to be. So I, I went over there and I, I talked to him and we hit it off. We like really got along great. And um, so I ended up buying a bike from him. And then we'd go on these coffee rides all the time, just hang out. And we had, it's Providence, which um, that doesn't mean anything to any of your listeners, but it's a very small town. So everyone knows everyone. Um and then, uh, so it's, I just met all these other, uh, people through Chris and we had lots of mutual friends. And then uh, I was getting back into road racing and I had him, uh, I commissioned him, I guess you'd say to build me a road bike. And I ended up, uh, wanting to be part of that process. Um, and, uh, so I, he let me for some reason because circle a was, um, the premise of circle a was to be a worker owned kind of company based off of loosely what independent was doing up in uh somerville but mm-hmm. not indie, indie fab uh but not uh with the same uh business acumen i guess you'd say so it was uh the premise was this and uh it's kind of funny uh when i say it out loud but each employee and uh, over the years i think there was um chris uh, emily class uh, myself um I think uh, Dan Langloy worked there for a, a spell. I don't know if he built too many bikes. I know uh, Jojo, Joseph Weiland worked there. And um, uh, I think, uh, oh, who else worked there? Oh, geez. Uh, now I'm like blanking. Uh, Mike Eng was there for a while. And uh, Jay Nutini was obviously there too. Not obviously, but he was there because he uh, ended up staying right up until the very end. So anyway, a lot of people were there. And the premise was you did the process from start to finish. It's not like, oh yeah, you're the painter or, oh yeah, you do the tube mitering. It was like, oh no, 
you're going to call this customer and you're going to get their information. You're going to find out what they want. You're going to do the fit and then you're going to find the tubes and then you're going to cut the tubes. You're going to make the bike. We only have one jig. So we're going to take turns using this <laughs> jig, this fixture, and then you're going to uh, paint the bike. And while you're painting, uh, getting all this ironed out, you got to order all the parts and then you got to put it together and then uh, make sure it's all dialed in and then uh, hands off the cut. Oh yeah. By the way, you have to do all the invoicing and everything. So everyone, it was like, like all these parallel um, employees or uh, parallel frame shops working under the same moniker. It was really, uh, it was awesome actually. Uh, now that I say it out loud, it sounds wacky, but it was so much fun. But we ended up building like, like Emily's bikes. You could sound like, Oh yeah, that's one that Emily built clearly because of uh, A, B and C. And oh, that's one that Chris built because he specialized in that style of bike. And then that's one that Brian built. Uh, because whatever for the same mm -hmm. reasons it's just like it was three different styles so there wasn't really a it wasn't like a circle a style it was like very much um very much like the anarchist frame builders <laughs> shop you think it would be so, but yeah. it was really awesome and yeah. uh, coming from like a diy punk rock um background i feel like it's like it uh, really sat well with my soul to work in there mm-hmm and I think, you know, if you're, if, you know, like, let's say you wanted to get a job working at Moots or Seven Cycles or some production shop because you liked the idea of learning frame building and, um, you know, so you wanted to go and study it, you know, working for other people. And uh, if you did that, I think a lot of times, I'm not speaking from my own experience, but I, I think this is probably accurate to say that a lot of times you would get started in, in one area and you would stay there a while and it would, you know, you'd probably have to stay at the company quite a long time and you'd probably have to like advocate for yourself to get the opportunity to learn everything from every department. Because, you know, like generally it's easier to train somebody up in one area and kind of put them to work uh, doing that. And you get a lot of experience at the one dimensional thing that you do. But uh, one of the things I always appreciated about like having my own shop and trying, I was just finding my way in the dark trying to learn how to build bike frames and that's slow because you don't have anybody around to learn from but at least like you know you're learning every step all at once in parallel so like if there's any marketing stuff that you need to figure out or if there's anything with customer work or anything with designing tools or machining the parts or welding it's like you're you're kind of learning everything all at the same time which i think it's to me it's more useful and interesting to be doing a little bit of everything than it is to hyper focus on a small you know, a uh, st small subset of the whole. Right. I, I totally agree because the, um, when you're working in parallel with other people doing the same work, essentially, uh, you, your work gets held to a higher standard too. So you're like watching it's like, Oh my God, that clear that Chris did went down so smooth, so clear. And I'm just like, and we could we easily just pick our brains uh, and just like discuss like, what did he do uh, that made it so much better? Or that like, uh, or his like if a weld or a braze was like um, I don't know if one person had a better technique it was just so much fun to be in that environment because it, I just learned everything and it's not the way anyone learns how to build bikes these days mm -hmm. so it's like you can't I don't there's no circle A out there there's no like um, I mean they're, they're production shops but they're like there's no um, it was almost like being at a school essentially because I you had to work to get paid essentially though. It was, uh, I guess they call that work study. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it, I don't know. It's, it was weird, uh, but fun. So it, I, I'm surprised that Chris let me work there and I am internally grateful to him for letting me have worked there. Yeah. And so you worked there from what was, what was the rough year span? 
Uh, well, I started kind of um, doing frame repairs and stuff in 2004, and then I built my last bike in September of 2013, so almost 10 years. Wow. Yeah, so that was, um, but it was it was fun. It was just, uh, I, I was commuting 15 miles uh, each day, like, it was like seven and a half there and back. So it was just like fun to like, like just be on my bike all the time and just like, uh, so be, be riding. And then like all the, every, every weekend I'd be riding more and, um, yeah, it was just like bikes, bikes, bikes. It was all, everything bikes all the time. And, um, and it's still, I mean, my mind is still everything bikes, 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 but it's, um, uh, I, my commute now is about 20 feet to a shack in my backyard. Yeah. Yeah, that's what do you think uh what do you think is the ideal amount of separation between like work life and personal life? That's something I think about sometimes. All the shops that I've had have been rented spaces that were at least like a you know, at least a ten or a twenty minute bike ride or drive or or so. They've been plenty removed from where I lived. And so that can be inconvenient. Like my shop right now, it's like, it's really, it's like a 25 minute drive to get to. And so if I have two hours free in the evening to go to my shop, get some work done, it's just not even worth it. Cause I'm going to spend like 45 minutes on the road. And then, you know, that costs money to drive. And by the time you get set up and everything. And so like, it's, it's frustrating to be separated from your workspace in that regard. Uh, on the other hand, it's nice to have a little bit of separation between work life and personal life. And if you were working like literally in your living room or something, it would, you know, you would feel like you were always, uh, always in the shop or something. Uh, how do you feel about having it so close in your backyard? Is it like, is it enough separation? It is enough separation. Uh, uh, I think not having it in the same building is, is, is essential. Like, cause if once it's in the same like spot is where you're living it's um i don't know then you're really living the living the nightmare then we're <laughs> just living the dream i don't know what the yeah and, I haven't done well that, and especially I, with, I, I with want... paints and stuff you know you do your own paint work that you can't have that in your basement like that'd be a bad recipe no no you, i mean you could but uh that's frowned <laughs> upon so yeah even like just uh uh just the idea of having my tanks or just brazing in my basement. Uh, I know builders who have done that and incredibly successfully. Uh, I mean, I'm, I don't know if uh, David Wages still does that, or I know Chris Bishop was working on a new space, but he used to be in a basement or, or um, Ezra uh, Caldwell used to be in his basement in like the tiniest, like mm-hmm. cubby hole. Uh, yeah. It's, it's amazing what, uh, real estate uh, is actually necessary for building a frame. Like you, uh, I think Corey Thompson had like a ten by ten area that he would build bikes in. Or I'm just dropping names here, aren't I? <laughs> you, <laughs> I know like half of these. I'm, I actually don't know okay. some of these. Well, anyway, Peter Mooney up in um at in Belmont, Mass. Um, he like has like in his in the basement of Belmont Wheelworks. This is like just storied. Um, this is I'm telling tales out of school because I haven't been to it, but like people have told me, it's like just like a, a tiny little like cubby hole in the basement that he builds frames in. Um, it's wow. just crazy what little space is required depending on uh, your style of building, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was always proud of what I did in my little shop. I mean, right now I'm under 400 square feet. I have a, the biggest thing in the room easily is my CNC mill, which doesn't get used for the frame building stuff that I do. And I do frame building stuff mm-hmm. only in really a hobby capacity and to learn and to make YouTube content these days. But 
um, you know, I have a bridge port and I have a lathe and I have a frame fixture and I have torch and TIG welder. And so, uh, you know, 400 square feet, I can do that. Certainly I've had smaller shops and made bikes. I think you could do it in under 200 square feet pretty easily with uh, a process that was heavy to hand files and hacksaws. And, you know, like, do you know what size your shop is right now? It's exactly 320 square feet, but um, I end up using a lot of uh, the root, the ceiling. There's a lot of stuff hanging <laughs> and a lot of uh, surf, all, like all the surfaces. Like I know like that if I leave any surface like exposed, even if it's like a, uh, the frame alignment table, which is by the way, it's like the, um, it's one of those little ones, the um, New England Cycling Academy, the NECA mobile little roll around table thing mm -hmm. and uh it's great uh and it does uh the, what i need it to do but it's like i see some shops with these like huge starrett stones and these beautiful um alignment tables and i'm kind of envious but then i'm like i think these are straight i think that they're as straight as that um that table is so uh yeah. and it's it, i just try to like keep everything off of the flat surface i like my bender my fork mandrel is on the side of my bench and mm -hmm. um all the files are on the side every just like everything has a place I, yes i i'm not like a super clean tidy person but when it comes to putting tools away i have to have like a place for it so that's, yep that's that's a thing yeah i think for me i'm not an incredibly clean person in my personal life like my bedroom is always a mess but the shop is workspace mm -hmm. and so like <laughs> i like being able to get work done and I used to be more orderly in my shop when I was just like, it was more of a hobby zone. And now that I use it to actually make and sell stuff and ship stuff, it's like, it's harder to keep it as orderly all the time. But there's definitely a difference for me that it's like, if this is the place where I'm trying to like get things done and focus and move through my tasks, it's really, I feel like it is more of a no brainer that I need to spend the time to, to get it in order. Right. Yeah. So so you were with Circle A for nearly 10 years, and at some point you decided to go your own way. Was that at the same time that Circle A was, uh, I don't know what happened with Circle A, what the end of that story was? Uh, were you? Well, were you... I wasn't there for the end of it, but I can fill you in. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I can fill you into where I left. Uh, so I started building under my own name while I was still there. And as you can imagine, that's kind of like, uh, I'm not like building competitive uh i'm not i wasn't trying to compete with circle a because i was still building road bikes and um mountain bikes and whatnot at circle a uh but i didn't i wasn't building like the randonneur light touring bikes uh custom racks and stems and stuff that i wanted to be doing and mm -hmm. so i started doing that on the side uh just as a, a fun project essentially in 2011 and i had built i i proposed it to Chris back in 2010 and he was uh, I don't know he probably wasn't too psyched because I mean why would you be uh, someone's going to start a frame building company in under your roof so it, I tried uh, to consider like I tried to find a place um, to build and I felt like I'd never had to do that before and and then I kind of was put into the shoes of every new builder in the world who's like where the heck am I going to do this thing that I want to do? And uh, so I, we had in our backyard a uh, three-walled structure. Uh, it's it, it was 16 by 20, and uh, there was, no, it was a dirt floor. And the ceiling, I, I, it was like only seven feet. So it's like I could – <laughs> it was really short. So I was like, I guess this could be a shop. And so I ended up uh, 
going to um, everyone's favorite tool store, Harbor Freight, and buying some high quality uh, jacks and um, yeah, hydraulic jacks to um, raise the shop right, and to raise uh, the build, roof. Yes, raise the roof exactly. Uh, <laughs> hand motion right now, and then uh, dig out the floor and uh, stealthily put in. Uh, now, not so much anymore. If you're, if you, can you edit this part out? Uh, yeah, we put in a um, a slab uh, underneath it and uh, built a. I built well. When I say we, it's just the cement truck came and uh, concrete and then dumped that there after I had dug it and and then I built a fourth wall and uh, put some doors up and then I immediately started building in that shop, which is that was in like uh, it actually it 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 <laughs> I never finished the shop. <laughs> it's still just uh it's still yeah, my friend benno helped me with the siding on the front of the shop so it looks presentable but it, as soon as you go to the side it's still just tyvek and um <laughs> squirrels live in the eaves and it's just yeah there's <laughs> it's a little it's and like i have to burn a lot of wood to keep it warm because it's so uh porous but uh i was supposed to you know, we're all, we're all kind of pressed for time. Yep. Uh, and now I spend my time building bikes and lo- I, I'm looking at the shop out the window right now and it's, um, it needs work. I, I took all the moss off the roof, which I guess is what you're supposed to do. And, um, sorry, I won't get into details here, but yeah, the shop is literally uh, pretty much just a shack in my backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does the trick though. It keeps things, uh, not wet. They keep them dry, I guess you would say, and, uh, warm in the winter. So, yeah, yeah, and it's a it's a simple low overhead model to to get you uh, the space that you need. You know, you don't need a whole lot to build bikes in the style that you're doing it. You have you have like a bridge board. Is that your only heavy machine tool? Yeah, there's a there, well, actually, there's a, a there's a South Bend Heavy Ten lathe. And oh, cool. That's kind of like behind the door, tucked away as you walk in. So I can only use that when the door is closed. And then um, the bridge board's right next to it, and then this stove and then there's this like uh, there's a sandblaster in there which um i don't know if you have a sandblaster in your shop but they are not the cleanest things to have in a tiny space so i try not to use it too too often unless i'm just prepping stuff for paint um or brazing so Mm -hmm. um yeah and then a big bench and there's a little tiny computer desk in the corner and a bunch of small parts drawers and i'm just going through the and there's an alignment table and and then more drawers, and then stuff's all tucked away, flat files to store tubing and all sorts of other fun stuff. So one question I wanted to ask you is, how does painting your own bikes affect the quality of the work that you do? I did the episode with Rudy from Black Magic Paint, and he was mentioning how if anybody wants to know how they ought to be prepping their raw frames before they send them to shipping, they should look at your work as an example, that it, he thought it was beautiful work. And I, I agree, I think you do really good work. And I, I mentioned, I said, you know, part of the reason I think that his looks so good is because he's the one painting them. And so, you know, when you do every step of the process, you learn how taking a shortcut somewhere doesn't save you any time later. Uh, how, how, like, have you been painting bikes from the beginning and how does that affect your total process? Yeah, I painted bikes before I built bikes. So, um, I mean, at Circle A, because uh, he didn't just put me, throw a torch at me and tell me to build he 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 started with the painting and then we i did a lot of repair work and then building so yeah i've been painting uh i guess 15 years now and um yeah i know uh, taking all the one thing we did at circle a from the start which is fantastic which is supplied air from a clean source 
wearing a suit, just like um, knowing that the isocyanates will um, kill you. So uh, I don't want to die. So yeah. I do take all the precautions. So they, um, that's the that's the the big thing. But yeah, the I, uh, in terms of like finished work, I just don't want to make more work for myself painting. So I if I know it's a quick fix, um, I'll do it. I mean, I, I think I, I well pinholes like do occur from time to time in like any brazing like and from impurities or whatever. And so if it's a super tiny pinhole, it doesn't make sense to like remelt it and refinish your work. Just uh, put a little dab, dab of um, putty in it and uh, sand it away and, and no one no one will be the wiser. Uh, but it's not like it's uh, structurally, uh, it's damaging. Or, I don't know. It's, it's fine. I, mm-hmm. I, cause I've, and you know what? At Circle A, I got to see hundreds and hundreds because I did lots of repaints on bikes and hundreds of bikes uh, in the nude. Uh, so it was exciting to see like, oh, my God, this um, uh, uh, insert high-end Italian frame brand here <laughs> is finished like this. Oh, my God. I was like, I, and, and that's and, or you just get like a, uh, any old like um, Schwinn Paramount or um, a Raleigh uh, Pro or something like that. And you're like, oh, my God, they were just getting these out the door. Uh, so it's like it, it kind of uh, it, it set, not set the bar, but it just told me where the bar could possibly be. And that like, I think, I think I'm okay. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, but yes, certainly um, the level of frame building since the, the seventies, sixties or whatever, just like has become such a thing that gets nitpicked over. So if you, at these, at uh, the shows, you want to have this bike that is flawless, perfect. Um, it just not a pinhole. So like I see that and then I, I guess I'm like, I got to, Feel that thing, and so I, I feel the pinhole. But anyway, it just makes the paint process go smoother because I don't like painting. I just do it because I can, I guess. Because yeah. I just I do not I don't like doing multiple color paint jobs. I don't know if you've noticed, but all my bikes are pretty much one color. Maybe I'll do a contrasting head too, but that's where I kind of draw the line. I kind of would rather spend time working on the the frame and fork itself. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed that like uh, when I started frame building and, and doing shop work and stuff, I was so cheap, it just was inaccessible or I really didn't want to part with my money for certain kinds of things. And so I'd do it myself, you know, like building myself some fixtures or, um, you know, I, I tried to paint my paint a bike once with like PPG automotive stuff and it turned out okay. Mm-hmm. And but like all these different things you do to try and save a buck when you're, when you're cheap and broke and whatever. And so I'd like do these things myself. And then over time it's like, well, you start to get kind of good at it. And then later on for me anyway, it's like more and more, it's like, Oh, I kind of like value my time a little bit better. If I had it to do over again, starting now, I probably wouldn't go so far out of my way to save a buck. It seemed like maybe not worth it anymore. But it's like now that you have some of the tools and some of the experience, it really makes it harder because it's like part of me is still really cheap, right? So it's like, uh, I really hate to pay somebody else. It's like I could probably do it as well as they could now. And it's it's funny, you know, I come up with that, come up against that more like thinking about like so the tools that I make and produce. Maybe it doesn't always make sense for me to be the one machining it on my little machine or like this is more of a CNC lathe part and I don't have a CNC lathe. I could send it to someone else or something. And you get yourself into that where you, um, once you take the time to learn how to do something, and I'm sure it's like that with painting, it's like, 
it really becomes harder to justify, you know, putting it in a box, packing it up really nice so you know it won't get damaged, sending the emails, paying somebody else, waiting six weeks or whatever it takes for them to paint it, and then paying right, them a right. professional's rate when it's like, well, I already have the gun and I have the area and I have the stuff. It's like, I should just do it. You know, it's becomes more and more resistance to stop doing it. I think once you kind of know how. Yeah. I, um, I, 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 if I didn't learn to paint at circle a, I would most certainly not paint my own bikes. I would send them, <laughs> I would send them somewhere to get them professionally done because that's what nice bikes, you know, they, they look nice and they just, I mean, even one color, um, is not, uh, I mean, it, they don't give good paint is something you have to pay for. And yeah, and I'm thankful so. that I learned I learned at Circle A, and I'm also thankful that uh, our friend Nathan, who worked at IndieFab, uh, came to work at um, Circle A, and he brought a lot of that PPG knowledge uh, uh, from IndieFab to Circle A. So we had to, we kind of, I think we uh, altered our system a little bit. That was back in like 2003, uh, and that was uh, super beneficial too. So it's, I mean. I'm still learning though, uh, in regards to paint because I'm not, I'm not the best. I'm not like, um, I'm not Rudy or, uh, Noah at Velocolor. I'm not like, yeah, I'm just not, or especially like I see Jordan Lowe's work at Hot Tubes. I'm just like, kind of, uh, I just don't know how the hell they do it. Like they, <laughs> I, I, and I'm, I'm a painter. I've been doing it so long and I'm like, how the hell did they do that? Yeah. But it's, it's just like anything you do it long enough. You do it, um, enough times you get pretty good at it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you about, well, I had it written down like this. Uh, I know you build more than just the frame itself. You build, uh, you, you build the bikes, you paint the bikes, you, you build stems, racks, you've even done brakes, uh, which I think is really interesting. And, um, you know, some people take more of a, like a frame centric approach, like, you know, I am a frame builder and some people really emphasize, uh, that, you know, they're more of a bike builder. Like I don't make frames, I make bikes. And, um, right. and so for you, like, what does it mean to take on the more holistic project of making a bike is, is part of that, uh, more rooted in like getting the aesthetic right, or is it getting the function right? Or I imagine it's a combination of these things. Like, what does that mean to you to try and build like a whole bike for a, like a real biking person? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Um, I think as every frame, it becomes a bike. Why not just make it a bike and make it right, right from the start, I guess. So, uh, yeah, I build frame and fork. I don't, I don't do carbon forks. I remember in a previous episode, you had some comment about carbon forks or steel forks being a waste of time or not a waste of time, but not a moneymaker. Yeah, but Carl I, was, Carl Strong was, he was joking. Strong, he yeah. said, he said, and don't build forks. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah, that's what it was. it's not. Anyway, the, it's not the like, easy money maker in the in the business equation of things. Oh, it definitely is not. It's not like uh, yeah, it's funny. Um, but there's uh, something to be said for building a complete bike that's very rewarding. And I've never built a frame. I've only built complete bikes right from the start. So when someone comes to me, they kind of or they're going to end up with a bike whether they like it or not. They can send me the parts, um, but they. Um, uh, yeah, for the pictures, I need to make it look like something I want to sell again. So, or sell, not again, but sell. So I, I just kind of, um, I might hang a different saddle or put, uh, take the splash tape off or something. I don't know, but I'm just saying like, I, 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 
I do build complete bikes and it's uh, fun to do because when the bike is done, I get to ride it, even if it is uh, not my size, because very rarely I build for someone who is exactly my twin. So I, 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 yeah, it's, um, it's fun. I don't know. That's why I do it. Cause if it wasn't fun, don't do it. Yeah. Well, that's not true because there's a lot of not fun parts of this business, but it's like, it's still, it's, it's one of the fun things, so don't take it away from me. Yeah. So what's, but, uh, where did you get started with the, the thought to make your own breaks? Some of that seems like actually pretty, uh, interesting engineering that's going on with some of these breaks. And then some of it is just, it's very beautiful stuff. Like what is, uh, what is it that draws you to, uh, like fabricating breaks? Well, um, I, I would just like making stuff and, uh, it's, it's, it's to really put a signature on the bike. Cause there are so many builders out there who do make their own, um, components or, um, uh, whatever, yeah, stems, racks, uh, accessories. And I really hold that in high regard. Um, some of my favorite builders, um, I mean, I love the Taylor brothers and they're just, the sensibilities that they're, they're, the racks were so simple, uh, and the stems that they made, uh, with their, just the, the, the Taylor stamp on them and just, uh, things like that. They like, uh, or if I see some of the Toei, um, builds out of Japan, uh, and so obviously there are a lot of, uh, builders now in, um, in the U S who are making their own stuff, mostly racks and stems. I see sometimes like, uh, people will be making seat post toppers because that's what uh, bikes have nowadays. And, um, yeah, it's just, uh, I, I like the idea of making stuff cause it really adds a bit of a signature to the bike cause you can, uh, cause that really, I mean, it's not like I'm trying to compete with any of the component manufacturers, yeah. uh, because the, like I'm making them out of steel yeah, because they're just like, <laughs> uh, cause I started making them out of steel because they were, um, uh, cause it was like scraps left over from the racks. And I was like, I could, I was like, and I saw a break. I'm trying to remember. I think I, it, it was a, well, nah, I saw a break. I wanted to make a break for a long time. And, um, it's uh, the Campagnolo, um, canties that came out, uh, maybe in 2013, they were only around for like a year. I think they're uh, honestly, I think they were made by Tektro, but they were just so cool. And they, uh, they really worked well on this, um, Portura I did a, a long time ago. And, uh, I was like, I took the dimensions down from that break and then I plugged them into this, um, break, uh, analysis app that my friend Benno de- designed. And, uh, it, they were, it was like a great break for, in terms of modulation and, and mechanical advantage. And I was like, Oh, why aren't there more breaks like that? And, uh, this is before the Renéiris candy came about, um, again, and uh, so I made a cantilever brake based on that. And I was like, oh, this works great. I love it. It's a fantastic brake. And then uh, almost immediately afterwards, uh, Renéiris came out with one. It was almost the exact same dimension. It was really um, uh, coincidental. But um, yeah, and then in terms of like stems, I think they just add to the bike. I think they uh, do racks. too. Yeah. I mean, it's. Um, I always liked, uh, you know, you imagine on like the one end of the spectrum, you can just order round tubes from whoever and you can get your dropouts from paragon machine works that are the same as everybody else has and you can just you know build like a very straightforward geometry and you can put a single color paint job on it and and build up the bike and it doesn't have a whole lot of like personality or anything necessarily 
But as you get into like uh, specifying the location and the degrees of bends for the stays, and if you like, I, I always notice Steve Potts does a lot of smushing and squishing on his chain stays of straight gauge titanium yeah. to get the bends just right. And I think his are very refined and beautiful. As you get like a like a beautiful head badge, and and we should talk about yours because I really like it. Um, but like the head badge is a piece of flair. Uh, paint, of course, can be carved details on lugs and stuff, of course, can be making your own dropouts, making your own stems, racks, you know, making all this stuff. As you do that, uh, it gets more and more in the direction of like the 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 craftsmanship of it is like unmistakable between people. And um, like I think Rick Hunter uh, does a lot of stuff where he's making like a like he does a like a wishbone sort of stay thing and all sorts of cool i don't know there's yep, just yep. i think it's really cool when the people are like is incredible yeah, yeah. when and people are steve Potts, like you, you if you see a steve Potts fork you're just yeah. like oh yeah that thing's awesome so uh yeah it's like the best unicron in the business yeah no it's beautiful and i i don't know i think there's something to be said for um you know it's like you're making the bike you might as might as well make it something you know gorgeous and something that stands out a little bit i think sometimes some of that stuff can turn into like um fabricating for your peers instead of like for the public or something and that's its own discussion but uh, i i don't know it, it means a lot to me i really like super admire looking at other people's work and seeing uh what they're doing uh it always uh, definitely piques my attention and uh I don't know. I always like segmented forks, you know, because when you have the five tube segmented fork that you're welding together, you can control uh, the angles of everything and whether you do the shoulders of it really mm -hmm. square or if you put in, you know, round pieces or you angle it or like there's just a lot of expression in the subtlety of the angles and the clearances of stuff, which is cool. Something you don't get with other forks and something you don't see very often and whatever it is that you do custom like that, I think is a lot of fun. Right. I don't build uh, segmented forks, but I do admire uh, and a lot because of the, the New England history with Fat Chance and segmented forks. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a, a, a really a sensible fork Yeah, in terms of cl getting clearance and uh, really dialing it in for the geometry of the, of the frame. Yeah, yeah, definitely like that. On a Unicron fork, especially for a road bike, that that stack up height between like the bottom of the headset bearings and then the top of the tire that's like necessarily a taller stack than you get yeah. on like a lugged crown fork or on a segmented fork and so if you're like yeah there's there's benefits sometimes to doing segmented and yeah yeah um well here's another question i had for you uh working all alone in your shop a lot of hours can be isolating um how do you feel about that? Like, do you, do you love that it's, it's so much time for you in your shop alone? Is that like something that you're totally into or is that just a necessary, like a, a necessary fact of uh, doing the work? Well, I'm, I, it's, it wouldn't, um, <laughs> no, it's not necessary to do the work because I, I was able to get work done uh, with other people in the shop. Um, they, you just do the same kind of thing, but it's like, there's someone over on the other side of the room yeah, uh, and you just have to both agree on what's on the radio. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's um, it's 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 it can be isolating. I mean, I I I'm I work, I work probably like around, I'm in there maybe like fifty hours, sixty hours a week at the most. And I'm thinking about bikes when I'm not in there, so I guess I'm working nonstop. But it's um, it's it's refreshing to be in there, and to be on this mission to make this bike, uh, on your own. Um, 
And I think there is something to be said about working in an environment with, with, uh, with other awesome people. Uh, so I, I'm, I would have loved to have worked at seven with Ian and, and Brian and, and everyone, everyone else who worked at, who works at seven, even right now, that just is like, it seems like such a fun crew, mm-hmm. um, or Indie Fab or Fat Chance, like one of the, any of these, like, um, uh, it's shops that have like the, just a great crew. Uh, it's like, I, cause I worked in bike shops with great crews and I worked in at circle A with a great crew. And it's just, um, I, I miss those days, but I also enjoy working in solitude too. So it's not like, um, so that if there's anything like left out or, um, if there's a mess made, I'm, I'm, I'm the only one to blame. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, I miss, um, I miss being around other humans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I can relate to that. I haven't had, you know, I've worked in jobs, uh, in bike shops and stuff with people, but I haven't had that in my own shop. And sometimes it's nice. Yeah. Cause you have no one to blame but yourself, but it's, uh, yeah, it's just a little bit lonely. Sometimes it's really fun to have the camaraderie of working with other people. And, um, yeah, no, it's true. When I was talking to Wade Beecham from Vulture Cycles, that was a fun interview. Uh, he was mentioning how, you know, he'll be out on the trail and he'll be riding and he'll get a case of what he calls frame builder brain, which is like, he's trying to just enjoy the ride. And then this thought pops into his head like, oh, you know, if I steepen the C-tube angle a little bit, it'd be better at this. Oh, but you know, then it's a compromise because this, and um, it's kind of funny how, you know, like when you think about that sort of stuff all the time, like you're just saying, like, even when you're not in the shop, um, and I guess I would just want to ask you generally, like when you're riding your bike, how does the experience of riding and continuing to ride, of course, like influence the way that you think about the bikes that you continue to design? It's like an evolving process, right? That like you, you're always kind of gathering new experiences and learning more that help you uh, better design and stuff. Like, how do you, how do you think about that sort of stuff? I think about, I think about frame building all the time when I'm riding because I, I build a lot of, um, I end up building like these randonneur style bikes or light touring about bikes that'll have like a front handlebar bag rack and the low rider racks. And, uh, I, I like to think, uh, that the way my bike feels is the best because, well, and it's obviously it is because I'm so used to it. And it's, if I got anything else, it would probably feel weird. Uh, so I, I, I think about front end geometry all the time because there's, uh, there's the BQ mentality, the bicycle quarterly mentality of like the low trail is the only way to go. And, uh, then there's the Grant Peterson high trail, uh, or the Jones, uh, mentality too. And then it's like, uh, and then there's me, which is like, I don't want toe overlap, for example, but I don't want shimmy. I don't want wheel flop. I don't want like, and so to alleviate all these things, I'm thinking of, if I made the top tube a little longer, steep in the head tube, got rid of the flop, and then uh, got rid of the toe overlap with a little more rake, but then that's too much, too much trail, uh, too little trail, uh, and uh, there's just uh, I'm always thinking about it. So I like to think that I found a balance with some of my uh, with my designs because uh, mm-hmm. I am able to build for people who are six uh, four or people who are um, are uh, under five feet and with similar demands of. Uh, they want to be able to carry a load in this way and they want to have the bike handle like this. And so um, scaling the design for these bikes is, um, has become a, a fun, um, uh, the fun challenge. Uh, but yeah, I love it. Yeah. I, right, think, I don't know if that answered the question. No, I think that was a really helpful response. Out. Yeah. Cause um, yeah, for sure. 
Well, I'm always interested. You said you you went to school for mechanical engineering, uh, and you know I have a sociology degree, which I'm not going to say is useless. I think uh, you know there's there's lots of ways that having a liberal arts degree can be helpful in life, uh, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm certainly not, I never had a job where I used my sociology degree. And <laughs> so anyway, uh, I'm just curious f- for you, you know, what you're doing is a little bit more related, uh, sometimes m- more than other times to the, the coursework that I'm sure you had when you were in college. I mean, how much of that is, is useful or helpful or, uh, you know, helps you understand, like I, I have a friend who's a mechanical engineer that I'll talk to on a pretty regular basis about my tools and things. And he gives me feedback. And one thing he said was like, well, you know, we don't know everything, but like we have a pretty good idea where to look to find the answer. And so for you, like you mentioned, um, you know, like the, uh, the mechanical advantage and, the, and the, the, the attributes of the brake. I mean, do you think about any of that stuff that you learned in school while you're uh, working on bikes and in the shop uh, or like as yeah, it applies yeah. to your technical pursuit of, you know, joinery and all that? Yeah, to some degree to understand... Um uh, the metallurgy, uh, like why one would use air hardening steel, uh, in one application and, and heat treated in another. And, um, when to use the straight gauge chromoly, uh, it's like, that is, uh, I mean, it's nice to have had some background. You definitely don't need a degree in engineering. <laughs> um, you could, yeah, you could just have like a, I'm sure there's a YouTube video that explains all of that. Uh, so I think, no, you don't, I, if I could, if I was just like dead set on being a frame builder. Uh, I don't think I would get a degree in engineering. Uh, yeah. you know, my first torch experience was I took, I, I mean, you can't just go and just take engineering. I mean, I guess you could, but you don't take engineering courses nonstop. You take like your, um, your electives. Uh, and I took, uh, me and, uh, one other mechanical engineering guy took these jewelry and metalworking classes that were awesome. Uh, mm-hmm. I took, one of my teachers, um, his name, well, there was Alan Burton Thompson and then, uh, J Fred wool. And he was the best. He had this like super carefree. He was like a giant. I mean, he kind of looked like Bruce Gordon, uh, just like a big tall, but he wasn't curmudgeonly. He was like, he was just all about the happy accidents and like how like you take everyday things and you make them into other things. Uh, and how you just, how you gotta see how things fit together and, you can make jewelry out of it, or, you know, just, you would take anything, whether it was like, a. he had his favorite example, uh, what to use in the class, like in, when we were doing this, like, uh, lost wax casting, uh, he would take one of these like old, uh, tape measures and it had like the add two inches, um, stamp right in it. And he would always put that into the, um, into the wax and then he would carve something out and then he would have this, he would end up with this like silver brooch or something that said add two inches on it. It was just like really, he was just really into like, serendipitous happy accidents and i think about him a lot um when i'm in the shop because i was just like he was like just having fun and i i I didn't know it at the time but apparently he was like a famous jeweler uh so i didn't i took that for granted but uh, he did teach me how to how to braise or i guess and in jewelry you call it solder even though it is silver brazing Mm -hmm. um and and use hard medium and easy (laughs) but yeah now it's all in percentages and it's seems so much more official uh so yeah it was just uh, that was my first experience with the torch and it was um it was uh, essential so i think jewelry and metalworking class would be fantastic understanding uh stress risers uh is important uh bike geometry is a fun thing uh you could get a lot out of the Paderic video not you 
uh, one. Well, uh, I know you could know. Too. Now, you know what? I did. I got the, because I, I didn't know anything about um, getting off track here. Uh, but free. I didn't know anything about uh, fillet brazing or how it was done. And I was like, I need to see that lugless frame building video, the Patrick. So I, in like 2005, I bought the, um, the two D is a DVD, sorry, the two VHS set. And I watched it like over and over. And then I built a BMX bike that was fillet brazed. Cause I was like, this is a good test of a bike. And, uh, it's still being ridden today by my brother. So it's like, um, yeah, it's, uh, fillet brazing is, um, uh, something that you can learn from a video, apparently. <laughs> that was and then, pretty uh, much how I learned it, too. Uh, in the Doug Faddock frame building class, they did a demo on fillet brazing, and we didn't do it, but uh, Herbie Helm gave a demo. I recorded like a 20-minute long video, and then, you know, like six months or a year later or something, I at college I had uh, access to an independent study in a sculpture shop, and I so I had the access again, and I just started doing practice joints, and they looked horrendous at first, but I just kept watching the video, and, and by the end, I thought, you know, I could do it decently, and it was from just watching a video over and over again, not having anybody over my shoulder. I learned how to light the torch and stuff already, but uh, yeah. No, that's great. I mean, I I think uh, in some cases that might be dangerous to people, but I think it's great to like, it, once you know how to light the torch and respect the, yeah. the tanks and all that, where to, how to store things, the safety aspect, yep. I think uh, you should play around and experiment and know how hot is too hot. When are you going to burn through a tube? Uh, what is too cold? Why you can't really use map gas? Um, these are all like, I mean, you can, I did, and it takes a long time, but it's <laughs> oxy map is not the right way to go. <laughs> um <laughs> I mean, well, I, I, I say that maybe, um, maybe it is the right way to go if I had the uh, right torch, but, um, yeah, at the time I was, things were just a little too cold on that first BMX bike, but, um, I became pretty good at filing and sanding. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, uh, all that stuff. If you just, if you have a, a sense of what you're looking for, and I guess if you know enough about the science and the metallurgy to not do it totally wrong, it's, it's mainly just about I think it's mainly about torch time. It's just getting them practice and doing 50 practice joints or whatever it takes before you feel kind of comfortable with it. Yeah, I think that's important. I think understanding uh, if you're just, I mean, if one is out just to build a bike, um, just understanding geometry a little. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I, I mean, uh, understanding that like lugs are cast at angles and there's a reason why and uh, you can, deviate from that uh if you go with um welded or fillet raised or bilaminate or whatever uh so yeah it's a uh, it's it, there's a lot um yeah, i don't know you you've covered this a thousand times with, uh but yeah there's a lot to learn in frame building but um you don't need an engineering degree to do it that's for yeah. sure yeah i think if i was going back through school again and i was i was on track to to try and start a successful frame building career but i knew that i for whatever reason I had to get a liberal arts degree, I would be, I would be probably interested in, uh, in like some arts classes with jewelry and metalwork would be great. And then, and then, uh, definitely some like business classes and marketing sorts of things. I think that that would, that mm -hmm. would honestly probably be really helpful toward the pursuit of it because the, uh, I mean, for me, the frame building and the metalwork and stuff, it is a lot to learn and you need to be good at it, but it comes more easily to me because I am more interested in it. And the rest of that stuff is so important to like the big picture of it. So, yeah, I understand like why you would want to take business classes, but you learn a lot of that along the way. Yeah. I guess you learn yeah. a lot of everything along the way. But um, yeah, I think it, the most important thing is that you love it. You love like you love dealing with people and um, weird 
um, like just quirks that some uh, customers will have, like because custom bike customers can be wacky, like really wacky. So it's like <laughs> they just come up with ideas, and then you got to be like, uh, I don't know if that's something I really do. That's more up of the blobbity blahs alley or whatever. Just it's uh it's yeah, learning being a, uh able to have those conversations with people and be um I don't know be cool about it is uh is tough that's like uh I, I learned a lot about dealing with uh i mean i worked in a bike shop dealing with people too yep. so it's um that's always fun uh but yeah i don't know this uh this is so much to it um yep. but I, I i think um i think i'm glad that you're making this podcast joe i think well, it's really you. valuable and if i was a new frame builder i would i mean and i'm a i'm a uh, not a brand new frame builder. I've been building for about 15 years. So it's like, I still listen. I'm like, I, I glean a uh, little bits of information from everyone. So it's, it's cool. And I'm glad yeah. you're doing it. Thanks yeah. man. You know, the thing that I'm learning from this podcast, uh, is that networking, like getting on the phone with people or sending people emails or getting to know your peers and the people that you can learn from is like probably one of the most important life skills that you can adopt or like habits. And I never did much of that. And I'm like, wow, that was really silly. Like, so lately I've been doing these calls once a week with frame builders and also not on the record. I've been just having lots of conversations with other peers of mine and people that I need to learn from in, uh, in my own little world and, and also in frame building and, and talking to my customers a lot too, you know, people who, who want to have their questions answered about my tools and stuff. But, uh, Man, that like, cause you know, you're, you're in your own shop and you're doing your own thing and somebody else is like on their own journey and they're learning stuff. And, um, you know, you can just learn so much from talking to other people and they can put you in contact with certain other people or resources. And, oh my God, I should have been doing this my whole life. It's, <laughs> it's so helpful, but it's I'm, true. It's so true. Cause uh, Peter Weigel is like 45 minutes from me, uh, out in Lyme, Connecticut. I'm in Patuxent village, Rhode Island. And it's like, he is like this intense wealth of knowledge and uh he's he's very open to sharing um when i have any questions about whatever and uh yeah so uh, we'll chat from time to time but it's important like i just when sometimes i'm like man i gotta reach out to peter i gotta, I gotta talk to him just like even just to, to shoot the shit just like to, to yeah. catch up and just talk green building stuff it's really helpful to have uh those connections um uh, so yeah, uh, there's sometimes you don't have that, uh, fortuitous, um, whatever the, where there's just like a, a amazing frame builder that's not too far away, but, um, I guess just you're, you're reaching out all the time and, and bringing a community together, Joe. Oh, thanks. Um, do you need to get going soon? You said you had to pick your... I don't know. What time is it? It's 4.06. Uh, no, I got, I got some time if you want okay. to talk. If you don't, I got a couple more already... questions. Uh, I wanted to oh, yeah, ask shoot. you about the head badges that came up. And I remember a couple years ago, I asked you about your head badge because I thought it looked great. And I was curious how you had those, how you procured those. Uh, tell me about the inspiration uh, and the design and the, you know, tell me all about the head badges. So I am not a designer. I mean, I like to think I have an eye for like how the bike, the bike's aesthetic should be in the end. But when it came to like the logo and the head badge and that, uh, aspect, I did not want to, I didn't want to take any chances cause I, I didn't, I just wanted to go to someone who was a professional. So my friend Josie, uh, did the design for the head badge and the down tube logo. 
and I was more than pleased with it. And that design was taken to Hookfast, which is about two miles north here on uh, in Providence, and they do all the badges for Rivendell. And so they, okay. um, it's, it, I know it's nice having them right there. And so they did, they took the badge and, and brought it like to like the three dimensional, uh, beauty that it is now. And they do other badges too. I think they did, uh, Joseph Ahern's and, um, oh shoot. Uh, I don't know. They do a bunch, but uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it's just nice having that right down the street here. It's, um, uh, super convenient. Uh, so yeah, that uh, it was the, um, and then they brought it to life. And so I can't really take credit for any of that except for approving it. So, um, mm-hmm. I'm happy with it and I am very proud to have it on the bike and I'm super thankful that, uh, I was able to barter with Josie for that. So that worked out well. Yeah. I think it looks really handsome. What you're saying reminds me of, I don't even remember if it was Quentin Tarantino. There was some filmmaker who I remember they were, they were saying like in a Charlie Rose interview or something about what they had learned about filmmaking was that like, you know, you need to be able to do a lot of things and then you also really need to be able to just pick the right people to work with. And so if you want a great soundtrack, you don't need to necessarily do the soundtrack, but you need to, you need to like find the right person to like get the soundtrack right for you. And in a similar way, you know, like as a frame builder, you're not going to be able to do every single step all by yourself all the time, but you can exercise some judgment about who you talk to about helping you and, you know, maybe, um, you know, that relationship is, is, um, you know, there's, there's something that goes into that to getting the right, the resi- result in the end or something. But, uh, you know, like you didn't, you didn't design the head badge yourself, but you could have chosen, uh, the guy who did the monster energy drink logo and you didn't, you know? And so I think, uh, you know, I mean, you, you kind of knew what you were looking for and you were able to communicate that with the person that you did choose and you chose the right person accordingly. So, you know, it's, it's partly as a credit of, well, thank of, you. of your having chosen. And yeah, I think it looks good. And I think it really, um, I think it seems congruent with the brand of what you're doing. And uh, yeah, so hats, hats yeah, off to well, you. Good she, work on that. Uh, well, that's all her. Uh, she <laughs> knows me, so maybe she knew who she was designing ah. for and, and then kind of got it. And uh, she was getting a bike anyway, so it was like designing for her own bike almost. So that was cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I wanted to I talk gonna, to you some. I was gonna, oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go what ahead. was that? I was just going to mention that the other things, like there, there are certain things that I do not do with uh, bike building. And uh, aside from like design, like graphic design work, um, I mean, I can cut vinyl, uh, but that doesn't make me a designer. But uh, the things I don't do are, are plating and powder coating. I don't have a powder coat oven. So like any of my racks or stems that get powder coated, I have to uh, get those to my friend Alex to do it or... Um, uh, the anodizing I have done right up the street, right near where the badges are made at Technotic. And then I have um, the chrome plater in Providence right up the street too. So it's like these, the coating processes that I can't do essentially are powder, uh, chrome and anodizing because that would make my 16 by 20 shop really a death trap. So yeah. there you have it. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk to you some about the videos that you shoot and produce. I see them on Instagram. I don't know if you post them anywhere else. No. Just for Instagram. Yeah, they're Sometimes be- on Facebook, I think. Okay. Yeah, they're beautiful, and I really enjoy watching you work. <laughs> um, Thanks. I mean, you know, you just, you know, you, you point the camera at it and you do your work, I guess. But, like, I, I've done, 
that sort of video and I do different kinds of YouTube videos now and there's a lot of work that goes into it just setting up the shot getting it framed right so your elbow isn't blocking it and then you know stitching it together and then exporting it and transferring it to your phone so you can upload and then uploading it and it's yeah just, there's a lot of little steps and I appreciate watching it uh, I'm curious what what compels you to do that and what you're what you're interested in conveying to people or if it's just like basically on the principle that you feel like, you know, it's important to document stuff. I think it's important to document the build for the customer. So they understand the amount of work that goes into the bike frame, because what they see at the end is just a, a painted frame. They don't even get to really, a lot of them uh, that I'm meeting customers aren't local. So they don't get to see the frame in its raw state. So I'd like to document the build. Um, and I used to do it just with like, because uh, before Instagram, Facebook, uh, social media, etc., I would just take pictures of everything and just like document it and then have like these um, folders on my computer. And then I would make this like extensive uh, slideshow and I would do a blog post about the bike, which I still do. And then a full slideshow. But now I try to do it like kind of in more in real time. So I'll like, I'll just, I have this like tripod set up in the shop and I have my like SLR uh, which is just like a Sony, uh, mm-hmm. body. Uh, and, um, I have all my old Minolta lenses from like the nineties when I used to take uh, film photography and they use the same autofocus mount. So I just, um, use those lenses and I just, um, yeah, cause if photography is super expensive, I don't really have any interest in like going down that road. So I use like pretty much one lens for everything. It's just this like 50 millimeter macro mm-hmm. and um, I'm, I'm just moving the camera around as I'm doing something. So it's not like it's intrusive unless it's like a super close up shot and I'm like brazing and I'm brazing in front of the camera and the camera's in front of me, the torch is in front of me. I'm like looking over the camera <laughs> sometimes it's yeah. goofy but i have a hundred millimeter macro for that uh but yeah it's just it, it, so i was like i mean i got all these lenses let me just see how hard it is how hard it is to use uh iMovie on my my phone and uh oh yeah the hardest part was moving the files around because yep. they, they get huge yeah uh, so i ended up um yeah just uh, making a couple videos and then i was like oh it's kind of fun and people like to watch it because they're like anyone who follows me now is not following me because of my bikes i think they're following just because they like to see yeah the process and that's fine i don't care but um i just like to um i like to share too i mean ever since i started at circle a i just wanted to tell everyone like there's no secrets it's all fun and it's this is how it's done it's like um but yeah so but there aren't any now it's easy with instagram i don't have to like try to convince my friends to tell their friends that frame building is fun (laughs) (laughs) yeah it is so much fun i I love being out in the shop and making stuff the uh you know like we have a pile of tubes and they're about ready to go together i know that's exciting but like when you pull it out of the frame fixture and they're unified and it's like bike shape that's it's so exciting yeah so at circle a whenever uh we would take the the front triangle out uh we'd always say it looks like a bike and uh that it was just the thing that we'd say and it, mm-hmm. and it, i still do it even though i'm alone in the shop i'll pull it out <laughs> in my in my mind and even that maybe sometimes out loud i'll say it looks like a bike uh yeah and then uh my son who was only three will come into the shop a lot and um which is like a death trap for a three-year-old by the way um and he, i'll say does it look like a bike and we'll be like yeah dada it looks like a bike oh that's um, adorable that's cool. Oh, yeah, he's a cutie. Um, 
What advice do you have for folks who are interested in building bikes uh, for how to get started and and like maybe like the biggest pitfalls that you would suggest people try to avoid or something along those lines? Uh, what are, are they, like building for like for money or building? How for about fun? either way? Because I mean, I think it's totally legitimate to do it for for fun and for a hobby. And yet, I from the beginning was always interested in doing it as a way to support myself just so that I could focus on it and I didn't need another job. And so it's, I'm always trying to keep in mind that not everybody is trying to do it as a business and not everybody should, and not everybody needs to, but like, that's always sort of my default, but either way you look at it, I mean, um, uh, yeah, I guess whatever it means to you or whichever one you feel like you care to speak to. Um, I mean, I think it's more applicable to build uh, your first bike as like for fun. Oh yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, I mean, because even if you eventually aspire to do it as a business, I, I would recommend everyone do it as a as a hobby for quite a while to get comfortable. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think for the for the super DIY um, minded folk out there, I think that doing uh, that just watching. The Patrick lugged and lugless frame building videos are a great resource because there's just so much covered in those two videos uh, that it, it's just it's fantastic. Uh, I, I think he's he's fun to listen to. Uh, he has like a midwestern kind of sensibility. I don't know. I don't remember exactly where he's from, but um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it was a good, those were really uh, wonderful resources. Uh, but I guess. Um, taking a class, you know, I, I think I would want, if I was to, if I wanted to build a lugged steel bike, cause that's pretty much what I build. I build lugged and Philip raised. I would go, man. Uh, I think Steven is, Belenke is teaching at metal guru. Mm-hmm. That, that would be the, I mean, if you want to learn Philip brazing from the best, that's, um, that's where I would go. I think, I mean, I could go, I would go now, if I had the time, because I could probably still learn a lot from him. Yeah. Um, maybe I can get down to Belenke and Steven will give me a lesson. Uh, cause yeah, he's, he is in my eyes, he is the best, um, Philip Razor out there. So he's, um, yeah, I don't know, whatever. He's just, a, he's been doing it for so long. And, um, I mean, I can braise, but like my finished joints look okay and they require minimal filing, but, uh, his just look fantastic. Kind of like, um, I guess Richie is pretty good too. <laughs> you know, I saw. But he's not teaching classes. I seem to remember. This has been. I don't know why I'm harping on this so much in this podcast, but uh, I saw a video of him once. I seem to remember Stephen moving hot and fast, like a big flame, and like just laying it down quickly. I don't know if that's an accurate description, but that seems to be how I remember him doing it. Um, and I've talked a little bit in some earlier episodes about how some people, like the way I learned, was more of a very slow method where you're you're adding a little bit at a time and you're smoothing it as you go. Uh, what is what is your preferred method, and what do you do? You have thoughts about which seem to be a better approach or pros and cons? Uh, I don't I don't know. I think they they both produce bikes that will not fall apart, so they're both fine. I think that the way I do it, I mean, that's all I really can speak to is. Um, I tack it in the jig in line, um, like say in, in plane and the front triangle. And then I end up, uh, tinning it, which means pulling just the brass into the tube at trying to build an interior fillet while, uh, before I take it out of the fixture to do like a quick alignment. And then I build the fillets, uh, make, making sure that 
there's a heat sink or something inside so things don't crazy overlies. And then uh, that's it. Uh, but I do it like a, almost like a welder, but I am not a welder. I am a horrible welder. I've done TIG welding. They don't look good. Uh, maybe if I had a lot of practice, but I'm just, it's just not a thing I can do very well. Uh, but I can lay down a fillet and it looks okay. So um, we all have our strengths. Yeah. But anyway, I, so I, I kind of start out um, one uh, one end of the, uh, the the in plane basically, and I start uh, and go around the tube. I don't know if I'm describing this properly, and then uh, but I go continuously. I don't like I'm just like feeding the rod in, uh, and I guess that's how Yamaguchi teaches too, just like feeding it in, like right to the base of where the the molten uh, brass is, and then just going, 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 going nonstop. I think I, Ian Sutton from uh, Icarus, who used to do Icarus. Uh, I don't know if he's building bikes anymore, but he um, used to lay down uh, these richy sized fillets and they were big, beautiful um, sculptures. So it's, uh, it's cool. It's cool what you can do with the brass. I know that much brass is not warranted, but it's, um, it's uh, also part of the whole style aspect of bike building, which is um, almost everything these days. Yeah. Um, how much do you, the way that I learned, it was like, you know, the molten brass is really affected by gravity. And so we were constantly repositioning the frame. And it was like, you know, in the course of doing a 360 around one joint, you might reposition the frame like nine times or something, like quite a bit. Because if you have the molten puddle right at the top, and if you have sort of the V of the two tubes coming together, if you have that so that so that that's kind of centered around gravity, then it's easier to contain your liquid pool right on the top of things. Whereas if you're, right. if you're brazing down the, quickly. Yeah. And if you're brazing down the side of something, it just wants to run away. Now I imagine with enough heat control, you could manage to braze down the side of something, but like how often do you have to reposition mm-hmm. it the way you do it? Always. So Always. It's, yeah. So it's in a park stand adjusted just so, so, you know, you can move the frame and it'll stay where it is. And, and it, the, the, the clamp is as tight as uh, it needs to be. And, also, I still use rubber jaws. I know a lot of frame builders use leather for uh, frame building, but I just keep the heat far enough away from that mm-hmm. joint so it doesn't melt the rubber. I've done that plenty of times. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so, uh, and I've also gone through a park stand before, just like, because they're not, they're not, you're not supposed to act, it's not supposed to act on like a friction um, mechanism. It's supposed to lock, so they don't like you. Um, uh, park uh, doesn't, apparently, they warrantied it for me, thankfully, but, um, yeah, if, if you go through, if you're spinning a park stand over and over again without locking it, they don't, it, that's not, that's not under warranty just in case anyone's wondering. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway, yeah, so I, gravity is always, uh, on your side and you're, I'm always using it. So I'm, I, I, I'll just like, I'll just be melting and then I'll put my hand down, uh, on a tube that's not hot and, uh, move it or I'll have a glove on, uh, and just move things around just to make sure I, and then I'm not like Richie brazing on my lap, but there's sometimes when I have a stem and I'm smoothing things out and I just have it in my hand and I'm turning it. Usually I have like, um, I have a grippy thing that I use. Uh, it's like a, it's, a, it's this high tech thing called a vice grip, but the, the <laughs> teeth are ground off so it can hold uh, a tube without marring it. And um, yeah, I use that in the park stand too a lot when I'm making breaks or stems or what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do make some of my own tools, but it's like uh, they're very crude. Uh, they're just like to get the job done. So yeah, it's um, but they do work, and that they they've worked for fifteen years, some of them. So it's, yeah, uh, yeah, they um, you, you just you do whatever you whatever you need to do to get by. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, well, I mean, that, that exhausts the list of questions that I had prepared. Uh, I know at some point you said you had to get going. Um, so uh, you have to pick a kid up. So yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show this week. Uh, it's really cool to hear that you've been listening. It makes me really happy. (laughs) And, um, and I hope to continue to make the show worth your time and all of the rest of the listeners time. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, thanks for being on the show, and uh, let's keep in touch. Let's talk soon. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Uh, it's been a good time. Thank you.